Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Matthew Freer, author of Belarus Under Lukashenko, published first by Routledge in 2019 and released in paperback last year. It's become a cliche to call him Europe's last dictator, and he may turn out not to be. But for more than a quarter century now, Alexander Lukashenko has ruled Belarus, a landlocked European country of nine and a half million people bordered by Russia, Ukraine, Poland, and two Baltic states. As Professor Freer's book recounts, the Lukashenko regime consistently rigs votes, but last summer's blatant election fraud triggered rolling protests that spread beyond the usual sus- suspects and beyond the capital, and appear for the first time to threaten his hold on power. Will he survive? Who is this former border guard and collective farm manager, and how did he hang on to power while the likes of Yanukovych and Milosevic fell? Using the concept of adaptive authoritarianism, this book explains how. Matthew Freer is an assistant professor at the Institute of History at Leiden University. He teaches Russian and Eurasian politics and comparative authoritarianism with a special focus on Belarus. He holds a PhD from the University of Birmingham and previously taught there and at Aston before joining Leiden in 2013. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. A pleasure to join you. Early on in the book, you point out that Belarus has been absent from the literature on types of authoritarianism. Why do you think that is? I think the main reason is it's not as well known as the neighbours around it. So uh, there tends to be a focus on neighbouring Russia, but also it never quite fitted in conveniently into existing paradigms. It often challenged the existing assumptions about what authoritarianism is in Eastern Europe and the post-Soviet space. And so I think sometimes it was easier not to look at it uh, than to actually make the effort to dig down into what's actually happening there. And your your timing turned out to be pretty perfect. I mean, getting this book out a year before what turned out to be the most serious electoral challenges faced, did you have a sense that something was coming when you were planning it? No, not particularly, I have to be honest. Um, there's always a possibility that uh, at some point the regime is going to face a threat and um, possibly crumble or uh, really have to deal with real problems. But as a rule, Lukashenko and his regime have been able to adapt and get around that in the past. Although, as I say in my book, that didn't guarantee that they would always be able to adapt and get around things. Hmm. Well, I mean, let's let's begin by running through the frameworks you assigned to the regime, uh, adaptive authoritarianism and neo-patrimonialism. Can you talk us through these concepts and how they differ from other authoritarian frameworks that you discussed, like, for example, Sultanism? Yes, certainly. I think in the case of Belarus, what I found when I was first researching it was that it didn't quite neatly fit into existing frameworks. There were elements out there which could apply to Belarus, but they could sometimes require a bit more tweaking to really understand what's going on. And I think I ended up with adaptive authoritarianism because one assumption is that 
Belarus, the last dictatorship in Europe, is a throw pass to the Soviet past. But it isn't that anymore. Lukashenko has been in charge for 25 years and, and counting. And maybe in the 1990s, there was much more focus on nostalgia, the Soviet past, closer ties with Russia. But the longer he's wanted to stay in power, the more he's had to adapt to bring in things which allow him to maintain his hold on power. So, for example, much more support of an independent sovereign Belarus in the 2000s. Um, and then more recently, perhaps more focus on globalization and diversifying economic uh, interests and ties. And so the idea is that rather be, than being an ossified throwback to the past, which is what many people would probably assume Belarus still is, I would say in reality over the past 25 years, either by luck or by design, the regime has been able to adapt enough to maintain power when many others would have assumed it should have fallen, as you mentioned, Milosevic, Yanukovych. After those uh, events elsewhere, the assumption usually was, and of course, this will have to happen in Belarus soon, but it hasn't yet. And so I yeah. think that's one of the, the, the main issues which crops up when looking at Belarus, that it survived when it shouldn't have. Yeah, I, I, th that really struck me reading it. I mean, at the, at the end of the book, you say, um, half-jokingly, I assume, that th this shouldn't be seen as a handbook for budding authoritarians. Uh, it made me think of that uh, Edward Lutvak uh, coup d'etat practical handbook. But uh, having said that, your description of his method is, is really quite impressive, his, his ability to adapt, his ability to divide domestically uh, and abroad. It, I mean, could you could you talk us through, I mean, some of these you know, some some of the approach he, he, he has taken? Yes, certainly. We can start uh, domestically. Um, what we've seen is that the people who are around him when he first came to power back in 1994 are not necessarily the same people who are there 25, 26 years later. He's still there, but it's not the case that he's kept the old guard there for 25 years, frustrating the new generation beneath. It may have annoyed some of the elites around him, but when it suited him, they've brought in technocrats or entrepreneurs and at other times relying more on law enforcement and uh, secret services. And so there's been that ability to not just rely on one form of authoritarian rule. I think that comes back to the adaptive stuff. There's often an assumption that it must all be coercion or it must all be kleptomania and elites. But what it's been is a mixture of all those things as and when necessary in different ways. And so we saw in the 2000s much more of a focus on competent bureaucrats and technocrats uh, when there was a need for more economic um, diversification. And then since after 2010, uh, the elections then, there was a crackdown. But a few years later, that was sort of loosened and there was more of a normalization of relations with the West. And now we're back into a cycle of crackdown last year. And we'll have to see if in two or three years we see a return to the attempts of normalization of relations, um, a bit more openness internally, having had the crackdown. Mm. And if we yeah. go to um, the international scene, again, the assumption mm. is Lukashenko must be the loyal friend of Russia. And to a certain extent, he is. However, it's well known that the personal relations between President Putin in Russia and President Lukashenko are not very good at all. And particularly over the last 20 years, we've seen an attempt by Minsk to, to play off both the West and Russia. So we've seen periods of 
liberalization or normalization of uh, relations with the West when it suited Lukashenko. And we've had periods of deteriorating relations with Moscow. But that hasn't meant that it's a one-way street. These can turn on a dime. If we look last year at the elections in the lead up to the elections in August, most of the focus of the regime was on criticizing Russia for potentially meddling. After the results and the protests, that completely flipped to criticizing the West and accusing them of meddling. So there doesn't have to be a logic behind how domestic elites uh, or audiences or international audiences are being treated. It's whatever suitable at that given moment to allow Lukashenko to stay in power. And because it's Belarus and people don't necessarily pay that much attention, and it's not that significant necessarily for the West or other powers, you can often get away with it. Uh, how much? I mean, how much of it, that kind of behaviour by him and his regime is strategic? Um, and how much of it is just him playing it by ear and managing to get away with it for 25 plus years? My instinct would be to say that it's more playing it by ear. I would struggle to say there's a, a clear overarching strategy in Belarus. Nevertheless, they've been very good at playing it by ear. And maybe that's the strength of the regime because they're not tied down by ideology or you know, key elites who have to stay in power beyond the um, presidential family. The regime can be whatever it needs to be. Uh, and so that allows it to survive for 25 years when you've seen similar sorts of regimes across the post-Soviet space, for example, face revolution or collapse. Mm -hmm. So I think there's not really a strategy. People would not argue that Lukashenko was necessarily an intellectual or a, a strategic mind, but he's cunning. That's often the hurt word you hear. He's cunning yeah. and can get around and adapt. And perhaps up until last year, uh, has managed to get away with it and wrong foot people for the most part. It might be that the, the sheer scale of last year's protests and the pressure he's faced means that that ability, that room for manoeuvre has narrowed down enough that it's becoming more difficult to really achieve this playing by ear that he used to be able to do. Well, you, you, you talk about, I mean, going right back to 94 when, when he emerged, that he, he really came from nowhere. You, you, you say that he was polling at about 3%. The constitution, as it was written with this executive presidency, was basically written for the um, for the, the prime minister at the time. I I never really understood the background as as to how he turned this around. Can you explain how it how it was that he, he came from three percent to to taking over? I think there's a couple of things there. Um, in the year or so leading up to the first presidential election, he had a prominent position in Parliament dealing with corruption. And so he was regularly bringing up um, ministers or senior figures and was able to be seen on TV haranguing them for corruption or accusing them of being involved in corrupt practices. So he's seen as he builds up this man of the people image of, I am defending you against these corrupt elites. And also, depending on the audience he was talking to, he could either be anti-nationalist, um, you know, appealing to the Soviet past, but also saying, I'm not part of the old communist elites. So he's appealing to the nostalgia of the Soviet past, but also saying, but I'm not one of those communist elites who failed. Um, Criticising um, the new generation of nationalists, uh, tainting them with the idea of we're under a, an independent Belarus, we saw economic and political crisis, but also saying, but I am the person who can lead you in a, an independent uh, Belarus, which is different, and he would argue, better than Russia. And so it's this constant all things to all people 
uh, and playing up this this very much man of the people image. You know, hence his nickname even back then when he was only in his thirties of Batka, the father, the little father of the people. He is there for the people. Mm. That was something very striking in the book. I I didn't know how different Belarus was compared to these, you you know, your typical kleptocratic post-Soviet regime. Um, You know, it's actually, you say it's one of the most egalitarian countries in the world. He's been very careful not to allow the development of oligarchs. And that if if there is any kind of ideology to the regime, it's one of... um, Heavy involvement of the state, which, as you say, is is anything up to ninety percent of the economy is 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 basically the state, and and a sense of um, egalitarianism. Do you think do you think that has started to be lost that sense maybe in the last five years, which is one of the reasons that he is less that the regime is less stable? Yes, absolutely. Uh, we've seen a a larger share of the private sector in the uh, the national economy. Although that's also been a sign of success and adaptability by the regime. We've seen a huge growth, at least up until last summer, in the IT sector. And so that was allowed to bloom and grow outside of the confines of the state, under the understanding, of course, that they didn't get involved in politics. So, again, it's an example of being not so much of a throwback to the past that they can't see the opportunity to let's build up an IT sector. Um, but I think also the expectations of the public is becoming higher. You know, part of his success was to decrease poverty in the country, open up opportunities, but also you see that people have higher expectations. You know, in the 90s, early 2000s, a very basic provision of services was going to satisfy a lot of people. 20 years later, people have higher expectations and the regime is finding it more and more difficult to fulfill those. And in addition, the, the, the traditional sort of financial and economic backer, Moscow, has been less willing to prop up the regime. And so there's been this been need to adapt and find other sources of funding and support, which has included looking towards the EU or China. So I think another problem for the, uh, the authorities last year was a general dissatisfaction amongst the public with their possibly decreasing standard of living. You, you um, in the book, you... you don't really well you touch slightly on the idea that there are there is a an element of the regime that looks perhaps more towards the EU than it does towards Russia or or, or internally is is there a, a lobby inside the regime like that and 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 is it growing at all I mean you know we saw this kind of um, this kind of division in Ukraine has anything like that developed in Belarus in recent years I would say in Belarus, Anything like that was a much less to much to a much lesser extent than in neighboring Ukraine. There's always been an element maybe of um, technocrats within the government or within the bureaucracy who were happy to work with the um, with the EU. Uh, you, I've talked to people who've said you know that um, the opportunities there and the the, the know-how and the uh, expertise they can build up is extremely useful. However, even if you have technocrats who are interested in looking towards the West, that doesn't necessarily mean that they also want democracy at the same time. Hmm. Um, so they want the benefits of know-how and expertise and financing and trade without the pressure of democracy, human rights, all those awkward questions that uh, Lucas knows doesn't want to hear about. And I think in reality, over the last few years, you've probably seen a decline in those elements within the regime because 
they've simply moved on elsewhere, taken jobs in uh, the private sector, looked for opportunities in Russia or the Baltic states potentially. And what we did see last year was, you know, the, the a former minister moving into the opposition ranks in, in the case of the, uh, the former culture minister, lots of rumours about the former prime minister. But even there, if people have opposed uh, the Lukashenko regime, rather than, attempt to, rather than attempt to reform it from within, they've tended to just sort of step away from it and move away. So I think there's less of it now, or if people do want to see change, they haven't really sort of taken up the, the opportunity over the past years to really get vocal about it. A few elements here and there, but for the most part, it's been protesters on the streets People maybe have resigned at middle level. Uh, that seems to have been happening in certain ministries and areas, but not really a, a, an attempt to attempt something from within. It's keeping the head down or, or stepping away from it all and waiting until the dust settles. I mean, because I, I wonder whether a, a model for them would be, for example, um, Viktor Orban in Hungary, that the, the idea that you you could uh, benefit from much closer ties with the EU without having to move to to full democracy. And you, you say something very interesting where you refer to, um, you question whether neo-patrimonialism could be compatible with democracy. And you say, quote, the primary goal of all sides is state capture, rent-seeking, and installation of their own patrimonial networks. Well, that that's precisely how Greece used to function until, until, until the crisis. Do you think... Do you think there's nobody thinking that way that they could find a sort of uh, halfway house between um, classical Western democracy and, uh, and and what they have now? There might be some thinking that, but the reality is there's nobody, after 25 years of Lukashenko in power, there's been no opportunity for anybody to really emerge within the system or, or beyond the system who could really then push for that. Um We've had rigged elections for the past 25 years, and in every election, it's been a new face for representing the opposition or the challenges. There's been no opportunity to build momentum over time. And within the system, you know, the fact that it's not been stale and ossified has meant that people have been moved around. And any time anybody might have emerged as somebody who could make that sort of claim of what's the minimum we can do um, to bring about change, um, they've been moved on or they've they've uh, found uh, positions elsewhere. So I don't think it's impossible that ultimately Belarus follows, you could argue, the model of Ukraine in that for a long time you had different people winning elections, but whoever won that election simply wanted to seize you know, control over the, the neo-patrimonial system. Hmm. But I think the other problem in Belarus is over 25 years you've had one neo-patrimonial system build up. Um, what you could see, I could imagine, is maybe something a bit more like Azerbaijan, where you saw a president step away and get replaced by a son. Yeah. Um, and then you might have some hope that, well, maybe the son will be a bit more open and there'll be sort of uh, a willingness by the West to, you know, um, think the best of the successor, but then ultimately find out that over time things are very much the same. And so there were the constant rumors about is Lukashenko grooming one of his, his older sons uh, to, to take over? Um, and his, his eldest son, Victor, you know, has held positions within the, the regime. But Lukashenko has also made it very clear he has no intention of doing that. Um, now, whether he means that or not is another question. But you know, I, think, I think the first thing we would see would be perhaps something within the family um, before it then moved on to somebody who's a bit more 
okay, you know, semi-authoritarian or a bit of openness, but not too much because we have to keep everybody happy. Yeah. Well, you, you do say that, that that some of the younger cadres had started to group around Viktor Lukashenko, and and there was a there was an implication, perhaps, that they, um, you know, th- th- this this would be a group that was slightly more open <laughs> either to either to the EU or to Russian business interests. H- how has that panned out? I think at the time when I was sort of first drafting that, that was very much the debate that was going on. Was it that you know, people were, were moving towards, you know, the ultimate successor to, to Lukashenko? Were people sort of placing their bets on Viktor? But that hasn't really emerged in practice. And the reality of the regime has been that it's ended up being harsher in its crackdowns, both in um, after the 2010 election and then after the 2020 election. So I think there may have been some hope that you know, maybe Lukashenko was looking towards retirement and he was sort of planning to hand over to to his uh, son, Victor. And so maybe people are sort of hedging their bets and looking towards uh, his, his son as the potential next uh, president of the country. But in reality, that hasn't emerged. And despite constant rumours that um, Victor's about to be groomed to take over, those rumours have been going abound, I'd say, for about 12 or 13 years now. So maybe one day it will happen. If you keep predicting every year that Victor will take over <laughs> next year, one day it will be true. But at the moment, um, uh, well, until last year, Lukashenko was very clear that he was staying in power. Now, we'll have to see what happens this year with the talk uh, of updating the constitution, you know, talk of maybe um, Lukashenko talking about retiring, perhaps under pressure from Russia. So we might see that this is the year that uh, Viktor Lukashenko or somebody else is being groomed to take over. But Mm. that's very much a result of last year's election and the ongoing crisis since then. Yeah, well, let's move on to to that and your your chapter on the opposition. You you point out that Lukashenko has said that uh, he, he's been blessed by the opposition he's had over the last 20-plus years. Um, and he's been very skillful in dealing with them until now, as you, as you, you, you talk about this idea of preemption as opposed to repression. Um, what, what went wrong in the, last, in the last year, you think? Was he, did he underestimate uh, Tikhanovskaya, or was it something deeper than that? I think there's a couple of factors which came into play last year. Um, there were probably on their own, each factor would be something they probably would have, you know, worked around or preempted or adapted to in the past. But the fact that they all came together was a problem for the regime. So one of them was COVID nineteen, and in the initial response of Belarus to COVID nineteen was not perceived as very good. And there was a disillusionment and resentment building up in the general population. They were not satisfied with what he was providing. He hadn't been the Batka, the father who had looked after them. He had dismissed it all as a hoax or a fake or until he got it himself. And mm-hmm. so there was a sort of a more willingness to, to protest or to have a challenger against him last year. In addition, there were other sort of problems around the economy which had been building up, which meant that people were less satisfied in advance of the election. In previous elections, maybe it had been possible to provide discounts or benefits or, you know, spend in advance of elections so people were happy. But it wasn't possible this time. The money wasn't there. And I think a miscalculation was, on the one hand, the regime arrested or detained two of the leading initial candidates, uh, Babarovka and Tikhanovsky. But they allowed Tikhanovsky's wife, Tikhanovskaya, to stand. 
And I think what they underestimated was that she'd actually be competent and draw support. There was probably an old throwback of, well, it's a woman. She should be at home looking after children, you know, washing up. Lukashenko basically said those things during the campaign. And they didn't think that a woman would be capable of challenging uh, him in a way. And they mis- misjudged how much the general population had genuinely got fed up with Lukashenko. And so Sikhanovskaya herself probably became the rallying point. People were not necessarily in support of her per se, but it was very much, you know, at this point, after 25 years of Lukashenko, it's not taking us anywhere anymore. We, we don't believe the promises. And so all these things come together, a poor response to the pandemic, um, the inability to sort of provide boons in advance of the election, uh, and misjudging the fact that people would, would rally behind whoever was going to be the leading candidate who brought together a lot of the opposition forces and appealed to the entire country. I think to a certain extent, the opposition may have been surprised by how well they did and that people were really willing to come out uh, because in the past, the assumption has been that Belarusian people, might, while they might not love Lukashenko, were generally satisfied with their day-to-day life. But in 2020, that wasn't the case. And we saw them protest in force and vote in force uh, for an alternative. So that caught uh, the regime off guard because in the past they'd always been able to assume people wouldn't really engage with politics and that um, the opposition would shoot itself in the foot. But in this case, it didn't happen. Have they shot themselves in the foot since then? Has she been able to maintain momentum since August from, from abroad? I think there's an element here of how much she's in control of the actual protest movement. Um, there's a difference between her. She is not sort of a personal leader of the protest or has a group which is personally leading the protest per se. She's not really like a Navalny. Um, you saw a lot more genuine sort of grassroots and protests which were uh, orchestrated sort of in a networked manner by social networks. She's, of course, in Vilnius now, so she's not in the country, although a lot of the uh, key figures from last year have now either been sent to prison or are in exile in uh, Ukraine or uh, Lithuania or Poland. But she's been keeping the profile up. She's been traveling a lot in Europe, which can be a problem sometimes with the opposition. They're perceived in, at home of spending more time visiting European capitals than actually dealing with problems on the ground. But she's kept the profile up. She hasn't done anything to uh, annoy people yet. She still has a lot of, uh, I think, sympathy in the country. And I think a lot of people are still shocked and horrified by the the degree of crackdown, imprisonment, torture that happened last summer. So I don't think Lukashenko has suddenly become more popular since then. Um, Whether people really think he can be brought down by Tsikhanovskaya in the coming year is another question, but um, she's keeping the momentum up. You know, they agreed sort of to, as is traditional in the Russian protest cycle, it's quieter over the winter, but now they're attempting the sort of the new hot spring of protests whilst the weather's nicer. So there was the attempt on the the anniversary of the first declaration of independence by Belarus uh, in 1918 last week to bring people out. And there's a real push to try and encourage people to build up the protests again, to challenge the authorities, to keep um, keep Belarus on the agenda uh, and keep the protests on the agenda at home. If 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 he were to fall, um, and let, let's say she took over and she carried out her um, her promise to have uh, full and free elections within, I, I forget what it was, six months. 
what what would your money be on the outcome being? Would it would it be uh, you know would it be a move towards more classical democracy as as we would know it, or, or would it be a a different type of Lukashenko regime? I think, as we've seen in many other countries, the first step would probably be a different kind of authoritarian regime rather than a complete leap to some sort of uh, liberal democracy. Um, I think it's far more likely that we'd end up with some sort of Lukashenko light or a soft liner from within the regime who presents themselves as a continuity candidate who doesn't throw out all the good work of the past, but makes the right noises about being more open to collaboration with other forces. That would be my gut instinct. Um, and and how, how do you think the Russians are playing? I, what, what would their right, ideal outcome be? Uh, I, I presume it would be a Lukashenko regime without him, something more predictable and perhaps more Russia-facing. Absolutely. They want a Lukashenko regime without Lukashenko, but they don't want Lukashenko deposed in a... Um, you know, a color color revolution or an electoral revolution because that doesn't look good for Russia, and they don't want him to lose an election because that doesn't look good for Russia as well. You can't, Putin can't allow people to see that it's possible to defeat an incumbent. So it has to be that you know persuading Lukashenko to go out on his own terms pushed maybe a bit by my Moscow, and so that could be what the idea of having a um, constitutional um, uh, reform will be, and you know in a year or so. Lukashenko can say, I have achieved everything I wanted to achieve as president, and now I hand over to, you know, a person who will be allowed to stand, who is considered, you know, tolerable to Moscow, but doesn't scare the horses elsewhere. Um, maybe allow a token representative of the um, the opposition forces or coordination council, but then I'm sure the campaign would portray them as inexperienced, you know, in the pocket of the West, and you need somebody who will really stand up for the loop for the Belarusian people against both Moscow and Brussels and Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I could imagine something like that. Um, mm-hmm. Now, you never know. It could be that you have a very unexpected result. The fact that Lukashenko was elected in the first place in 1984 was not what was supposed to happen. So I would be mm-hmm. loath to say that it couldn't be possible that you have a, uh, a surprise result. You know, Back in 1994, Belarus was held up an example of, oh, we've had a change of power through elections. Unfortunately, that was the only one they had. <laughs> but um, but I wouldn't rule out uh, that it, you know, a, a well-coordinated and well-organized opposition campaign, which which kept Bosco happy and the former elites happy and appealed to people in the country, couldn't succeed. But my, my gut is that the first step would be you know playing it safe. Um, mm. And then maybe in a later election, we see um, the emergence of something a bit more democratic or a bit more pro-Western or... Well, I'd say, or pro-Belarusian. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, and, but it's hard to see from reading your book. That it's hard to it's hard to imagine you're going to see the even if you see the emergence of a, a democratic force. It's hard to see the emergence of a sort of market-led or, or in quotes neoliberal government because it is such a state-dominated economy, and it seems to be relatively popular keeping it that way. Yes, it would be a case of having to look at. Um, I'm sure there are people in, um, or ec- economists uh, in the Belarusian opposition would start pointing to, I don't know, Sweden or something and say, well, look at, look yeah. at how much of their economy is uh, state run and, you know, a, a, a social democratic uh, system like that. Now, of course, Sweden's rich, so that they can afford to do that. But there will be the example of, of, of trying to, you know, um, find a way to 
at least assuage the potential problems of a big bang crisis uh, uh, attempt to change the system. So it has to be a longer term thing. Um, but hopefully with support of um, the EU and other post-Soviet countries which have seen economic reforms and working out what can be done. I remember a few years ago talking to somebody from, I think it was the EU, and they were saying the advantage for Belarus is it's a relatively small country with a relatively small economy. So actually in terms of support for economic reforms, um, it's a much easier prospect than, say, Ukraine. Mm. Economic reforms... Um, attempts to open up the system in Ukraine is a lot more difficult than it is in would be in Belarus. You know, the argument was in Belarus, if they did want to go down that route and they really meant it, um, it wouldn't necessarily be, it would be difficult, but it wouldn't be impossible. Whereas when they look at other, you know, big post-Soviet um, systems and economies like Ukraine, that's been a, a challenge since the Orange Revolution in 2004. There's been talk of economic reforms and openness and they're still plugging away at it. Whereas the argument was in Belarus, should they take that route, it, because of the size of the economy um, and the, the the way it's made up already, you know, it's relatively it's more manufacturing. It's some bits of it are quite well established and well developed. It wouldn't be that difficult necessarily. Nevertheless, there would be people who lost out. You know, the benefits which are provided in agriculture, for example, um, probably wouldn't survive a, a massive reform, and so that is going to be an issue. Yeah. And actually, the fiscal accounts and even the inflation performance is is substantially better than than what I would have expected. You know, looking at previous uh, economies, transition economies like that, potential transition economies like that. Yes, I mean it's not doing so bad at the moment. They've had terrible moments, particularly with inflation yeah. in the past. But yeah, overall they haven't been too bad. Although, of course, they have benefited when necessary from uh, stabilisation loans from Moscow. Um, mm. So. I think oh, yeah, last year yeah, they yeah. got uh, one and a half billion from Moscow, half a billion of which was to start paying off the previous one and a half billion loan <laughs> from Moscow. So that is a problem that um, uh, there's a need for whoever's in charge to look towards Moscow, um, but without becoming a vassal state um, or being completely under the thumb of uh, Moscow. Yeah, you, which, you also which is something this... that uh, Lukashenko has been quite good when when it suited him to to stand up to uh, Putin. You know, he's been in, he's yeah. been in control longer than Putin. He's been you know, he's got a few years head start on him as president, and over the years, uh, every so often, Moscow's made noises about union state and you know no longer bailing them out and you know getting rid of uh, subsidies and support. And when it suits Lukashenko, he makes nice noises about yes, of course we're going to do something. But when push comes to shove. They've always been able to adapt and manipulate and play off different sides or play up the military side against the economic side to still keep uh, getting uh, support and subsidies from Moscow. Because Moscow also doesn't want to see Belarus collapse. Mm. Um, and they don't want to be seen as the people who caused Belarus to collapse because then you lose any potential support from you know, the constituency of voters and elites in Belarus. So Moscow also has to sort of play this complicated game of not wanting to support to keep paying for Belarus, but not wanting to be seen the ones who destroy Belarus economically. Yeah. Yeah, you have this killer fact in the book where you, uh, you know, the, 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 he's bragging about the uh, Belarusian um, economic miracle and you point out that concessionary oil and gas from Russia has been worth 16% of GDP um, over the, over that period. But I, I wanted to come to one other point you, 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 you just mentioned in, in passing in the book that at the early on in his regime, he held up hopes that he could actually succeed Yeltsin as president of a new 
unified state. How, how long did that ambition last? Well, it wasn't an openly stated ambition, but around that time in the late 90s, you had both sides, both Moscow and Minsk, uh, very happy to play up the idea of a union state. Um, Yeltsin, because he was facing re-election in 1996, and so signing an agreement with Minsk sort of appealed to the uh, nostalgic past. And the argument is that from Lukashenko's side, he was perhaps ambitious, he was much younger than uh, Yeltsin, much healthier, and that maybe he was eyeing up um, taking a position when Yeltsin stepped down and in a new union state. A lot of this is sort of gossip and hearsay, but there were reports that uh, in one of the negotiations around um, creating this union state of Russian Belarus, there was going to be a position of vice president. And so Yeltsin would have been president and Lukashenko would have been vice president of this union state. And it was Yeltsin's advisors who said, no, 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 we can't have that in there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that, that maybe there was some hope from the Minsk side that you know, if there wasn't a clear successor to Yeltsin, Lukashenko could step in. And Lukashenko has always been very popular to the Russian domestic audience. Uh, mm-hmm. Certainly in the 90s and 2000s, he regularly visited the oblast and went around. He had a high profile. He'd do interviews with local media. Um, whenever Russians were asked who is your favorite or most popular or most trusted um, foreign leader, Lukashenko was u- usually up there. But then if there were any ambitions on that front, they were destroyed when Putin came in. Uh, Putin was the young successor um, who perhaps Lukashenko thought he could have been. Now, there's no clear statement he was saying, yes, I want to do this, but there's hearsay and and rumour and sort of reports that maybe those were his ambitions. And at least there were certainly concerns in Moscow that that was what he was aiming for. Um, So, yeah, there's a a different history. If if maybe Lukashenko had got his way and they'd created a vice president of the Union State, and if, if Yeltsin had had another heart attack and dropped dead, Maybe that would have emerged as a as a as a force or a, a movement um, that people would have rallied around, but it wasn't to be. Russia without oligarchs, uh, imagine. Um, <laughs> well, to, to, to close the interview, as usual, I've asked my guest to choose a book to recommend to uh, to listeners. What, what have you chosen? Well, I thought, since I'm based in the Netherlands at the moment, I'd choose a Dutch author. Uh, but it is translated into English as well. It's a book called In Europe, Travels Through the 20th Century by Geert Mack, who is a Dutch uh, journalist. And he, at the sort of turn of the century, turn of the millennium even, uh, his paper uh, paid for him to travel all across Europe and during this trip write about uh, the history of 20th century Europe. And so I find it's interesting to get a perspective which isn't English or German or American or French, it's a Dutch perspective. And I also like it because it doesn't assume Europe is Western Europe. There's a lot of stuff about, you know, he goes to Volgograd and Moscow and Odessa. And so it's a travelogue, history and Dutch. So I thought I'd uh, share that with your listeners. Thank you. Well, today I've been talking to Matthew Freer about his Belarus under Lukashenko, published by Routledge. Uh, Matthew, thanks again for coming on. A pleasure. Thank you.